Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to the class on Romans, and today we'll look at issues in Romans 14. I think Romans 14 is at least on the surface fairly obvious that Paul is trying to get bring together Jews and Greeks from two very different cultures and communities and unify them in love. He does a similar thing in Corinthians, and he'll talk similarly in Colossians. That is that there is an ethic that is at work in, uh, in this one sacrifices his own. What is not essential in his culture or in his identity, especially if that thing, as in Jewish food laws, you know, what you can eat, is in some way inherently exclusive. And so Paul is telling people not to concentrate on food. But of course, this is not simply a Jewish problem. It may be, as in the case of the Corinthians, those who are idolatrous may in fact have their consciences uh, seared in some way by eating meat sacrificed to idols. We're not really sure it may be both things, so that both communities are going to have to relinquish a certain understanding to bring about tolerance. And of course, Paul is quite willing to do things that will unify people. He's quite tolerant in in some aspects that uh, he's willing to forego eating meat. He's willing to forego drinking wine. There are certain things that he will tolerate in order to blend, to be all things to all people. But when we talk about a a cultural understanding, there are certain things that Paul will not tolerate. And so this is clear in Corinthians that he won't tolerate the man living with his father's wife, sexual immorality, anger, issues of just basic love. He's going to say, well, you just because you're of a particular culture doesn't mean, you know, you might say, oh, well, we Italians from Rome, you know, we're a very hot-blooded people, and so we get angry, and it's just part of our culture. So many of those things are obvious, but what, what I want to touch upon is what is less obvious, and that is that Paul is working from a deep grammar in this chapter that he spent the entire book really building up this understanding of an ethic my case here is that the Shema or what Paul, he's actually referencing in this key verse from 16 to 20, as he does in 1 Corinthians 8, the idea of the oneness of God, but he's, he, he references here the Trinity. And so the, the point of Romans and the point of this chapter that is culminating this is now we understand who God is. We understand the human predicament, the human problem. You know, in chapter 7, he describes one who is divided against himself. I don't think that's a peculiar problem to a Jew. It may be that a Jew realizes that problem in a way that no one else does. And so the dividedness that one finds internally, that one finds in the world, between cultures that one uh, finds between himself and God, that 
alienation just works itself out in the way that we know. And so Paul's at the deep grammar level is giving us a different way of knowing, and that different way of knowing is a Trinitarian way of knowing. And so he's trying to bring together pagan Rome and those from Judaism who apparently, and we've said this in the introduction to the book, and here where we're coming to the close, that they're, they're having to meet now maybe in the Gentile homes, and it may be that this is causing even more conflict. And so what he's saying, if you look at this passage, is that you know, he re- references each person of the Trinity, but he's saying that now in Christ, because of who Christ is, that we can actually, as he said in chapter 8, he said other places, that we can now carry out this faith. We can now do it. And so the faith and practice, this this sounds on on the surface like a simple thing. Oh, we're going to do what we believe we should do. But Paul is saying we're going to do what we believe we should do, but we can do it now because of who God is and what God has done in Christ. If you would look at 1 Corinthians 8, he uh, quotes the Shema. He doesn't do that here, but I think it's the same thing, that what the Shema does is proclaim the oneness of God, that it is a monotheism. But of course, Judaism was not successful in bringing about the unity that is apparent there in who God is. And so Paul has reworked. He does this obviously in Corinthians. I think he's done the same thing here in Romans, that he's reworked the the Shema or Jewish monotheism around a Trinitarianism that includes then the person and work of Christ. This is not a lowering of who God is, but it's it's a fulfillment, not a change of Jewish monotheism. Part of this, I think, is understanding that idolatry, you know, what is the primary characteristic that you find in the law is over and against idolatry. But, of course, the long struggle of the Jews, they keep falling back into idolatrous religion. And so I think we need to identify clearly what's happening in idolatry. And the real problem in idolatry you know, when the, it's, we often think of idolatry, oh, you're going to bring God down and, and make him a piece of matter or material. But of course, God had always revealed himself in various appearances to, to the Jews, to, to Abraham and to Moses. And so the, the problem is not simply bringing God down, but that in idolatry, in idolatrous understanding, and I think idolatry is typical of human understanding, and this human understanding then is exposed in the law, what it actually does is remove God completely. And so you might look again at Romans 7. Romans 7 is saying, well, here you imagine that you have access to God, but you don't. And so the law exposes the problem of idolatrous knowledge, but it does not solve it. And as long as it's unsolved, so too is the inherent alienation from God, from other people, and within the self, that a community, a real-world temple community, unified around Christ, is now made possible. The Jews never, you know, their, their entire religion was pointing to this possibility of dissolving 
the problem of idolatry in all of its forms and idolatrous knowledge. We might just state it very simply that in the way that human beings work outside of Christ or in the fall of man, and the way that Paul describes it is that he says, in my mind, I believe one thing, but I can't practice it. Uh, that is just the human predicament. And the, the truth realized in, I think it was there in Judaism, that we need to bring together belief and practice. But there was an inability to do so. How this works, you know, this, this may not seem obvious, but having lived in a culture that was very religious in Japan, it's obvious that what religion usually does, that it in, in fact serves not to uh, support a particular set of practices per se, but in fact the, the belief in the religion and the practice will work at very different levels. That is that they're separate. It may not be that they're consciously separate or you know, that if you ask a Japanese person, even at their, while they're at a shrine praying, you know, are you religious? They'll say, no, I'm not, not religious. Uh, this is just what we Japanese do. And so they, they are not even aware of how these two things fit together. And of course, I, I think that there is this same, same thing has happened in both Catholicism and Protestantism, you know, that the belief and practice became separate. So in Catholicism, they talk about the ethic laid down in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and only those specially called were able to keep this ethic, you know, the priests or uh, others obviously could not, and so others could receive forgiveness, but they could receive a kind of salvation through the sacraments, but it's, it's in a strange way, it's almost on the order of, you know, what Luther is going to, re, he's going to refute in Catholicism, but in a sense, it's not that far apart, because in Lutheranism, too, there is this sharp divide. What Luther took to be law, you practice certain things, and he's imagining that that was the, the Jewish problem. And, of course, here's where the whole new perspective on Paul kicks in, that we see that, uh, no, Judaism was never about that you would be saved through works, but you would be saved through works of the law. That is, that doing stuff was not the problem, but being Jewish and imagining that being of the chosen people was the marker then of salvation. And that's the issue precisely here in Romans 14 with food and uh, how these two communities are going to blend with one another. This is thematic in the New Testament. You know, this is the picture in James of the double-minded man that in Christ we're no longer divided. And, you know, we can say the same thing about Romans 7. And so ethic, if you, even if you went and studied ethics at the, in the university, what you would usually study is some sort of decisionism. And what is pictured is the idea that we have access to an ethic within us that through our decisionism that we can arrive at that which is right and begin to practice it. But what we see in the New Testament is, in fact, we're divided in a, in a sense. In other words, Romans 7 is not something that people are entirely conscious of. It's kind of strange. I think as Christians, we recognize Romans 7 and the man of Romans 7 and imagine, oh, yeah, that's, that's who I am. But I think even the recognition of that is something that's given to us in Christ, and with it we can recognize we're to move beyond that.
you know, how do you know what someone actually believes or, or because they apparently don't know themselves. And this is what Jesus says, you know, look at a man's heart, look what comes out of his mouth. That practice shows forth belief. You know, when Japanese are praying at a shrine, they say they're not religious, which is true. You could take this either way that they disavow their belief they, or they don't know what they believe or that what they believe, they think they believe, they in fact don't believe. I do not really believe without being aware of it. Niels Bohr is the, the example of this, you know, that he's the famous scientist, that someone came into his uh, house and he had a lucky horseshoe up, and the person said, well, surely, Dr. Bohr, a man of your great scientific acumen and intelligence, you don't believe in this myth of the lucky horseshoe, do you? And he scoffed. He said, of course I don't believe it. I know that this is just a, a, a kind of mythology. But he says, I've been told, though, that the, the horseshoe works, even if you don't believe it. That's kind of the way that religion works for many people. So I do not really believe. But, of course, what he's saying is that, that the belief and the practice are to, and he, he's not even aware of this. He wasn't saying this as a joke. And so this is what you get. Paul is saying, you know, you need to bring these two things together. Be aware of if you mistreat your brother, that well, you're not being consistent with who God is in Christ. You're not being consistent with who you are. You do not really believe in Christ. This is the whole point of the New Testament, is to establish an ethic of love that, you know, it's not if we had to identify what is the heart of the New Testament, you know, some might say grace, some might say uh, righteousness. Well, all of these things may be central, but they're not the central thing. The central thing is love, and Paul is telling them to act on that love. The question is, you know, does, does this person, do you have the faith of Christ? How do you know that you have the faith of Christ if you're imitating Christ? And so Paul is attempting then to, to bring about this blending. And, uh, of course, this is the N.T. Wright's picture of these little temple communities that we'll come to next time. That is, that, that he's establishing this new form of humanity, that the church and these communities, these blended communities in which Jew and Gentile are brought together, a, a huge sort of impossibility in both of their minds is now made a reality. That is that the dividing wall that he's, you know, in Galatians that has been broken down, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, here is a different community of practice. Next time then we'll take up with chapter 15. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.